Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On DAB and on your smart speaker, the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. Good morning. Welcome to the independent republic of Mike Graham right here on talk radio. It's all kicking off in the English Channel this morning. as French fishermen attempt to blockade the port of St. Helier in Jersey one day after France's maritime minister threatened to cut off electricity to the Channel Island over the dispute. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a moving story and we will keep you informed throughout the morning. We're hearing uh, that the fishermen in question may now be uh, sitting down to talk around a table, which is pretty typical of what the French do most of the time. What we know right now is that Emmanuel Macron has sent a military vessel to the area of back to back up the 100 strong fishing fleet currently circling the Jersey port which they brought to a standstill earlier this morning Boris Johnson last night sent two Navy gunboats to Jersey uh, HMS 7 and HMS Tamar they're both in position to protect British fishermen should that be necessary at the moment uh, it looks as though uh, it's all reasonably calm but there were flares being fired Uh, no doubt as I said earlier the cheese will be broken out the baguettes will be coming into play as well and soon enough the boulangerie uh, will be eaten by the French, because they're very good at eating the French, aren't they? They're very good uh, at pretending that they're actually demonstrating about something. Very good at blockading, very good at burning tyres, very good at stopping people coming into their country, very good at going on strike. But what they're not very good at is winning anything, for heaven's sake. Coming up first, though, we're going to go further uh, into the investigation of the big story we broke last week, and that is why GPs are making it so difficult for their patients up and down the country to see them. We'll be speaking to a law firm specialising in patients who are bringing cases of clinical negligence against the NHS as a result of being denied access to healthcare. Just what exactly is going on? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by commentator and author Helen Dale with her take on the week, including the latest from the world of academia and cancel culture. Plus, we'll be continuing the debate on mask wearing for children at school after a court ruling yesterday established that it cannot be made compulsory. 0344 499 1000. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you seeing? What are you doing? Uh, what are you being told? Plus, I'll be giving you my view of the row going on at Disneyland about Snow White and a case of unwanted attention. It's all a bit strange. And because it's Thursday, of course, we'll be joined by award-winning wine connoisseur Helena Nicklin, and she might well have something French for us into the bargain. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, 
Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, of course, as I said, as long as uh, the story is running, uh, we will, of course, be bringing you uh, all sorts of uh, breaking news throughout the course of the morning from Jersey, from the English Channel, uh, from international waters, from French waters, from British waters. uh, And as soon as anything happens, we will bring it to you. First of all, though, uh, let us say a very good morning to Linda Miliband, uh, Milband, rather, Head of Clinical Negligence at Social Justice Law Firm Thompson's Solicitors. Linda, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. This has been a story that we kind of came across by accident a few weeks ago where people started telling us that, you know, it was really, really difficult still for them to get to see their GPs. They were finding it almost impossible to actually have a face-to-face consultation with them. Um, it turns out that in many cases, and some, not in all cases, in many cases, GP surgeries have simply never really been properly open for a year. Well, that, that is true. We have had a lot of clients come to us and uh, they say they haven't received the right treatment uh, over the last year. And uh, some of them have had some very serious outcomes as a result of that. Um, we've had people whose spinal problems have not been properly diagnosed and also people who have not had cancer diagnosed. Right. And so you're basically working as a, um, a solicitor for some of these people whose situations have become so dire that they've ended up bringing lawsuits. Yeah, I'm afraid to say that there have been quite a number of cases that have come to us where people have had cancer diagnosed late. Um, We've had uh, a number of lung cancer issues and um, because people obviously have coughs and if you don't get sent to the hospital with the right tests quickly from the GP, um, obviously that can become very serious. Yes, exactly right. So tell us about some of the cases, if you can, Linda, that you've you've currently got on on your books. I mean, this this has been going on for a while. I mean, one of the really big problems is that people go to see their GPs with uh, coughs and uh, they aren't always diagnosed immediately as potential for lung cancer. Um, We've had one case where somebody actually went and had coughing of blood and that wasn't actually uh, sent off, that people are supposed to be sent on a 14-day referral to a hospital following Mm. that but the GP only actually did a an x-ray which came back clear and therefore nothing was done yeah and that did turn out to be lung cancer which is an extraordinarily terrible thing to happen to anyone I mean I've seen some uh, some, some some documentation and some um, some correspondence if you like from some doctor's surgeries where they're more or less saying to people you know the reason we don't ask you to come in if you report something is wrong is because sometimes we need to wait longer to see what else is wrong before we can diagnose what it what it is which seems to me to be sort of counterintuitive they're more or less telling people to diagnose themselves and only come to the doctor if you're if you're really seriously worried that something terrible is happening yes i think uh, i think that's one of the things that you can't always spot things over the telephone or even on a zoom call so I think, you know, as soon as we can get back to people having proper person-to-person uh, appointments with GPs, that, that will be better for everybody, really. Yeah, but I mean, in, in your examination of individual cases, presumably you get to ask the doctor's surgeries and the people working in them why they aren't open, because at the moment there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. Uh, well, obviously, we get the notes, um, uh, you know, the new notes and records, which are coming through electronically. And, and so you can see on the notes whether people have had a uh, personal um, visit. Uh, and there are certain things that you can do, like prescription renewals um, over the telephone or Zoom. But I think it, it is clear from the notes that there have been 
a lot of people who haven't been seen personally over the last year due to COVID. And obviously they would have greatly benefited from a personal appointment. Yeah, well, exactly right. Because I've, uh, I've seen, as I say, a lot of uh, pieces of information coming to me over the past week or so. And there's a place called Ivy Grove General Practice. I'm not entirely certain which part of the country it's in, but they've written a 16 page letter basically to all of their patients explaining why things are the way they are. And much of it, they say, relates to something called e-consult, which is um, apparently an online method of reporting what's wrong and waiting for the doctors then to get in touch with you. It doesn't seem to be working very well. I don't, I don't think I've come across that specifically, but we've had a lot of cases where people have had telephone appointments. Um, and obviously the problem is that you can't actually see the person. And therefore some of the uh, very important signals which would lead to um, a referral or an ambulance being sent aren't being picked up. And I, I think that that is my, my worst thought is that if you can't actually see the person you don't know how seriously ill they are right and sometimes over the telephone people put on a brave face that uh, you know if you were seeing somebody face to face you would know how sick they were mm. whereas if it's just by telephone you can't actually see that person can you well that's right and also you know for a lot of elderly people um and elderly patients who probably tend to use the doctor more um, you know, they're not familiar with computers. They may not be able to use uh, their actual, you know, this, this e-consult scenario where they're supposed to fill out bits and boxes and tell people what's wrong, take pictures, which they might find difficult to do because they haven't got the ability to do that. They might not even have a smartphone, you know. And it seems to me that the general principle for why GP surgeries are closed is COVID. But COVID now is hardly really being used as a reason for anything, is it? Well, I mean, obviously things have improved, it would seem, and I would hope that uh, everyone is now preparing to uh, open their doors and um, get back to a normal service. So I'd hope that GP's practices were doing the same. Well, you would like to think so, but there's no sign of it, Linda. That's what I'm saying. And I mean, I don't know what, what <laughs> yeah. you I don't know what you've found in terms of the numbers of GPs who are working from home or numbers of GPs. I mean, everyone who I've spoken to who's actually made it into a GP's office uh, and a GP surgery says it's like a ghost town. There's nobody in there. It's not like they're overwhelmed with patients. There's just no, there's nothing going on. We have actually had that reported by clients to say that even when they have been to the surgery, um, there are very few people in there. So uh, I think that, you know, that might be right in, in certain cases. Yes. Well, certainly, I mean, Alison Pearson, I don't know if you saw wrote a piece in The Telegraph yesterday um, about a terrible story of a woman who lost her husband Um because of the fact that he wasn't treated for, for the cancer that he should have been treated for because he couldn't get to see his doctor. Because effectively, the, the, the National Health Service has become the National Covid Service. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to have to say that I think that story is actually um, quite uh, common. I think the cases we've had, that type of thing is, is, is the most thing that the, the most important thing that people have reported is that they just cannot get an appointment. Mm. Right. But I mean, I guess I, I suppose I mean we've been trying to get um, hold of some something called the Patients Association. We've been trying to get hold of anyone in the BMA uh, who would answer questions about this. It's very difficult. Everybody seems to have gone very quiet uh, in the way that they should not, because we are demanding a health service that works for everybody, which is what it's supposed to be: universal health care, free at the point of delivery. Uh, and yet, it's not being done, and nobody seems to be doing anything about it. I think it is very important now that everybody does um, 
contact their GP and um, obviously if they do think they need a face to face appointment um, insist on getting one because I, I do think there is the opportunity now uh, with some of the relaxation of restrictions for people to have personal appointments. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not even about the opportunity, really, is it? I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a right, basically. If you you know, if you're living in this country, uh, if you're a citizen of the UK, you know, you have a right to see a GP. I mean, I've seen over the course of time some GP surgery saying we can't take any more patients on, or we're too full, uh, or in some cases we're not going to see you anymore because you're too difficult. You know, it's, who's in charge of these people? Well, I mean, obviously, I think most GP surgeries are private. They are um, actually funded by the NHS, but they are run as private businesses. Um, but obviously, the, I think they do have to um, uh, cooperate and... Well, surely, uh, they're employed by, by, but surely they're employed by the NHS, aren't they? Uh, well, I think some are, but I think a lot of them run private practices. Uh, but they do have to adhere to the rules set out by the NHS. Well, yeah, we'd think so. But, you know, this is this is the frustrating thing for an awful lot of people. You know, I'm getting, uh, you know, calls from people every day, getting texts from people every day. Um, you know, very exceptionally, I'll get one from someone saying, actually, our GPs are working fine and everything's good. And, you know, I took my daughter there just the other day and we got seen and everything was great. But that's very much the minority. But what it proves is that it can be done. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think that uh, everybody should now be planning to get back to full time opening. Um, as soon as possible. Right. And and what would you suggest people do then when you say that people should demand to see the GP in person? Um, you know, does that risk then them possibly being blackballed and told they can't come into the surgery because they're too troublesome? Well, I would hope not. I mean, I think if, if uh, my view is that if you are really ill and you do need to see somebody, you've got to be pushy about it. You've got to uh, keep ringing. You've got to keep contacting them and and not sit at home because we have had people who you know for 24 hours of delay has has had huge repercussions so I, on my view is that everybody should be just that little bit pushier if they think they really do need to to see somebody and it's really important i think everybody does get the right medical treatment at this time particularly yes i mean we had a caller yesterday who told us that his surgery uh, had decided and sent out a letter that they were going to close down their switchboard for an hour uh, in order to keep uh, up with some of the demands that they were facing because they were claiming that you know there's more demand now to see gps than there's ever been but i don't really understand why that would be why would it be any different now than it was before they actually could see people yeah i mean i haven't got any any figures on that i mean obviously uh, i i think quite a number of them are um, seeing people who uh, perhaps have there's been a backlog but i would hope that um you know now i think uh, things are getting better the surgeries would start to open and uh, offer a proper system again and in terms of your own cases of clinical negligence what happens to the individuals that you're representing? Do they get sort of banned from, from the GPs that you're suing or are they asked to move somewhere else? Or, what, what, or does, it um, help, does it help their cases at all? We haven't had a lot of that, I have to say, um, because there is a duty of candour, really, for people to accept and also report back where there have been errors. 
So I don't think we've had a lot of people who've been asked to move because of a negligent act, no. Well, it's not a very good look, is it? I mean, it wouldn't be a great, it wouldn't be a smart move. But I mean, sometimes, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, doctor's surgeries just do not treat people as if they are customers, which is what they should do. You know, I mean, I've got one here from Paul who sent us a, a, a text in that says, you know, to name and shame the doctor's surgeries. Mine is in Orpington in Kent. I'm not going to actually name it because that wouldn't be fair because <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's true. But he says, no appointments, Gestapo-like receptionist, absolute shambles. Uh, clap for the NHS, don't make me laugh. Um, and a lot of people are very, very um, fed up with it. Well, well, I think there is um, always the right to make a complaint to your GP surgery if you think anything has gone wrong and they should investigate the matter mm. and send a response. Uh, so I think that would be the first thing that people should do if they have got issues yes. uh, to try to sort it out amicably. Yes, and it seems like this e-consult system's not working terribly well. Here's another thing from Steve, who says, I booked an e-consult appointment for this morning, and I've just found out the doctor I'm waiting to get a call from actually retired years ago. Dear, that, 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 that does sound very strange, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why that would be. Well, I mean, it seems this e-consult system doesn't appear to work terribly well. I think that's where we are here, isn't it, Linda? Well, yes, certainly. I mean, obviously, if you have a system and uh, you are asked to participate in it and... Again, I'll say it, that um, if it doesn't work for you, I think you have to go back to the surgery and uh, explain why it hasn't worked for you and yeah. ask for an appointment. I mean, this open letter that I was mentioning before that's been sent to the patients from Ivy Grove says costs are important because if a GP surgery cannot make enough profit for the partners that own it, uh, then GPs resign. More work lands on the GPs that are left and eventually the GPs hand back their contract and the GP surgery will go out of business. And when a GP surgery goes out of business, all its patients have to be reallocated elsewhere. And this puts more pressure on the remaining surrounding GP surgeries. And before you know it, you have a domino effect going on. Well, where do all these GPs go if they decide to shut down the surgery? Presumably they go private. Um, well, I think um, some obviously have difficulties because uh, of retirements. I know that a lot of GP surgeries have had quite a few of their GPs retire. So I think that can happen. But I do agree that um, if people are asked to move, it can be quite quite a huge upheaval for people. Some people have had the same GP for many years mm. and uh, they, they like to see their, their personal GP. So it can be a huge upheaval for people. Yeah, I just think it seems to be very hit and miss as a system, you know, because you can be lucky, you can have a good doctor, you can have a decent surgery and, and you can have no problems at all. But that seems to be very much in a minority of cases. Again, Ivy Grove Surgery say this, uh, your health is not a commodity that can be treated as a convenience provided at the expense of others. It is actually an innate and priceless privilege that is, that is available to everyone. They basically say, we do not see our job as being here just to fix you. And this is a doctor's <laughs> surgery. Well, what is, what is their job then? <laughs> well, this is a, an interesting comment, isn't it? Um, well, it's terribly think, arrogant, uh, isn't it? Well, I, I think, you know, there is a variety in this country of different types of uh, GP surgeries. Some people think they're very good. Some people think they're not. Mm. And um, I, I have had, you know, a number of people and clients, they just have not got a good service from one GP. And I, I think if the relationship breaks down, then that possibly is a good time to try and find another GP surgery that you can go to. But as I say, it is a big upheaval. Yes. People. No, I think you're absolutely right. Well, Linda, listen, thanks for talking to us. Appreciate your time. Linda Milband, Head of Clinical Negligence at Thompson Solicitors. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
currently watching uh, the seas around Jersey because there is still a big flotilla uh, of French small fishing boats, you'd have to say, uh, alongside um, a French Coast Guard ship, it would appear, called the Athos. Uh, there's a couple of British uh, gunboats down there as well. We're going to talk now, though, to Andrew Lambert, Professor of Naval History at King's College, because I thought it'd be interesting to put a kind of historical perspective on this. I'm not saying that this is by any means some kind of serious dispute, but it is a dispute and it is on the high seas. So let's find out whether it's uh, like anything else that's happened before. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. I thought we'd get a bit of a sort of academic bent onto this um, because there is a tendency for people to get a bit carried away uh, and think there's some kind of, you know, Agincourt part two about to begin, which I don't think it is really. Um, but there is a fa- fascinating history, isn't there, on the seas between uh, France and uh, the UK? Yes, I think there are two things we need to remember here. One is that Jersey is, of course, much, much closer to France than it is to England. Yeah. But it remains part of the English crown when the English crown loses control of Normandy and northern France. Mm. Very, very far back in the 12th century in the reign of King John. So for historical reasons, Jersey is out there and you would assume that it was connected with France. And of course, one of the points here is it is connected with France. That's where they get most of their electricity well, from. Yeah, which, funnily enough, is one of those great uh, pieces of information that I didn't have a clue about uh, until this week. Of course, you know, England gets electricity from France as well, so that's not a you know that's that's not a universal there. But those waters have been hugely sensitive, and historically, when England and France were hostile uh, and indeed were waging major wars those waters were the front line in some very serious conflicts. This is the front line in the Napoleonic Wars. Yes. The closest that English territory gets to the coast of France. So, and those fishing rights that they're talking about, there's good fishing there. There are fishermen on both sides. There are island fishermen and mainland fishermen who use and share those waters. But there have always been demarcation disputes. Mm. Who own... Is there some part of that sea that is only for the Jersey and and island fishermen and some part that's only for the French coastal fishermen? And is there something in the middle where they have to agree to sort of cooperate? Mm. Because what we're doing now is we've been in this arrangement with the European Union for a very long time in which for fishermen, fishing rights have been absolutely central to their view of this question. They don't think about the high politics of Europe. They think about where can I fish, what is legal, what can I land, and can I make a living as a fisherman? Mm. And so when the, the rules change, and if you talk to fishermen in Cornwall or, or most of the other British ports, you'll find that they too are, are struggling with the adjustment to these new regulations. Yes, but it's interesting, isn't it, Andrew, because as you say, I mean, you know, they've been involved with the European Union for a very long time. But historically speaking, it's actually quite a short time, isn't it? Because it's only really since 1973, 74, whereas you go all the way back to the Battle of La Rochelle um, in 1372, when when these disputes were, as you say, slightly more animated. Yeah, so there's, there's a very long history of this in the 19th century. Britain and France came very close to serious disagreements over the oyster fishery off Jersey. Um, there were <clears throat> serious altercations between fishermen. Um, you know, blows were exchanged, but serious blows, and I think the odd life was lost. Mm. And the British and French governments had to do exactly what they've done today, which is to send in their own patrol vessels 
to make sure that the two sides were demarcated and, and were behaving properly. Mm. So the authorities on Jersey seem to be remarkably sanguine about this, that the French are going to protest. They're entitled to protest. They're, there's not a particular problem with that. And as long as they protest in a lawful and civil way, they're making their point. They have a point, and the authorities in Jersey will have to take that on board and make their minds up about whether they want to change their procedure. And, of course, the British and French governments and the European Union will need to settle what the regulations are. But while while it may be um, kind of... I suppose, um, strange that that there are British waters around a place which is so close to France. There is, in fact, an international line, isn't there? Because I've looked at I've been looking at this maritime uh, app all morning where you can see all the ships moving around and and hanging about in various different positions. But the French Coast Guard ship Athos appears to be on the right side uh, of the international waters, as as it were. It's in French waters. It's not veering over that line into what would presumably either be international waters or British waters. So the fact that those are territorial, I suppose, is is the heart of the matter, isn't it? Because there's no reason why, even though it's been going on for decades, that the French should have unfettered access to British waters. No, and the, the question at issue is what are the regulations that will apply? And there are different kinds of regulation. There's obviously what exactly are you allowed to catch in mm. terms of fishery protection, protecting stocks for the, for the future? Uh, where can you catch it? On what days can you catch it? Because many of these fisheries are seasonal. Mm. So there's a whole raft of things which have to be settled. And what it looks like is that on one side, the French would like a permissive regime to be in place, and the islands would like to impose a more restrictive uh, regime. And somewhere between those two poles, the free-for-all and the you-can't-do-anything, <laughs> uh, is a happy medium. And that's what we're going to end up yes. with. And that um, would be hopefully what we would all want, because that would be the sensible thing to do. And I'm told, when we spoke to somebody in Jersey yesterday, most of the it's mostly shellfish, I understand, that they get from around those particular waters, lobster, etc. Um, most of it gets sold to France anyway. Oh, Yes. Um, the majority of fish caught in UK ports uh, ends up being exported. Mm. Uh, we don't eat enough of our own fish, but we ought really to change that. Yes. Um, I mean, certainly uh, this does remind me more of the Cod Wars of the 70s, which occasionally turned quite nasty. They did. And the Cod Wars were called that because, yes, blows were exchanged. No guns were fired, but ships ran into each other, uh, including quite large warships on both sides. So these things can get very animated and they can become too meshed up in national politics. Mm. I think some of the headlining this morning, you know, Navy, Navy gunboats, PM steps in, um, gave it a, a significance, which I think in hindsight we will think was slightly overplayed. No, I mean, I was, I was suggesting this morning, actually, that it looked a bit more like that Monty Python scene where you've got the, the French at the top of the, uh, the castle turret sort of hurling insults at the people down below, and it's, that's about as bad as it gets. Yes, but uh, I think the, the presence of, of, of national vessels on both sides just to maintain presence to establish, yes, this is the British side, that is the French side. Mm. We need to maintain order and make sure that nothing goes wrong. And those vessels are not there to protect their own national vessels against foreign intervention. They're there to make sure that their own national vessels behave themselves. Yes. Yeah, it's a watching brief. Yeah. 
So the French vessel will stop the French fishermen misbehaving, hopefully, and the British vessels will doubtless do the same. So it's about maintaining good order at sea, which is critical. It's about maintaining a balance between the rights of the locals and of the people who also fish in those waters. And it has a very long history. It is almost invariably about shellfish. It used to be oysters. It's now includes uh, lobsters as well now. But those are really, you know, those are very significant issues if you're fishing out of one of those ports on the coast of Norway. Yes, but it's pretty irresponsible of the French maritime minister, though, isn't it, to say that we're going to cut off all your electricity if you don't do what we want? Um, that tells us, I think, something very different about the state of French national politics. Uh, France is very keen on being France, but within the European Union. And its view of these situations is not the European view, it's the French view. Mm. Um, France is a member of Europe when it's convenient. It's it's France when it's more <laughs> Yes, well, I think that's a very a very wise summation of the situation. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Andrew Lambert, Professor of Naval History at King's College, giving us the history there uh, and how long this has been going on, uh, the little tit-for-tat business between France and England uh, and France and the, Euro the European Union, France and Great Britain. Uh, it's been going on for a very, very long time. Uh, I don't suppose it's going to be solved any time soon, but certainly uh, I see no reason why uh, in the UK we should give the French access to anything uh, in British waters without them paying for it, at the very least. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very, very good morning to Helen Dale, writer, lawyer, political commentator, and uh, somebody who used to suffer from dyslexia, apparently. Helen, a very good morning yes. to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well. I'm quite enjoying the old dust up with the French because the great thing about it is that it never really it's comes. It's so very. It's, it's so very French. It is. It doesn't really ever come to anything. I, mean, I was expecting to see pictures of them hurling, you know, brie at the uh, at the English warships because that's the kind of thing they do. I'm waiting for a flotilla of French fishing boats to come up the Thames and then deposit some rotting fish outside the Maritime Museum in Greenwich <laughs> or, you know, maybe sneakily get across London and, and deposit their rotting fish yes. outside the Palace of Westminster. Well, quite. You know, a little bit of France well, comes if you to if, Blighty. If you remember the Brexit uh, fisherman dispute uh, way back when, when the fishermen came up the Thames, uh, I've already been sent the picture of Bob Geldof uh, yes, he decided so to take it upon himself <laughs> to stick to give him the two-fingered salute. Uh, so somebody's already sent that out saying, here he is, the leader of the French fishermen from Brittany. <laughs> but I mean, it is it is kind of, it's 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 the sort of thing that fills you with, with, um, with joy in a way, because it's as you say, funny. it is, it is, it is quite funny. It is quite funny. It's deeply French. And the thing is, the, these two industries, so fisheries and agriculture, so the common, you've got this, the historic background radiation provided by the common agricultural policy mm. and the common fisheries policy. And they were designed, Vernon Bogdanor's written about this and I've reviewed his most recent book for CapEx on it. They were very much designed, those policies were to protect French farmers, small, particularly small French farmers and small French fishermen. Mm. And this is something that is not just Brexit related. I mean, you used to, when you studied European law at university, I remember studying this at university, you would get cases where there were intra-EU disputes over this. And there was one case that I that 
I remember studying, and it was called the Spanish Strawberries Case. Mm. So when you were writing about it in your EU law exam, you had to, instead of putting the actual official name up, because they're, they're, they're not named in such a way that is easy to recall, no. you summarise the facts in right. the name of the case. So we would all call it, the law students would all call it the Spanish Strawberries Case. Mm. And that involved French hauliers stopping Spanish strawberries at the French-Spanish border. Yeah. Um, and this is from another EU country, and either setting them on fire, rolling them over, mm. or in some other way destroying the produce inside them. It was just extraordinary and just deeply, deeply French. Yes. This is just what they do. They love a fire. I mean, they, they, they do like <laughs> setting fire to tyres quite a bit as well. Um, and they also love going on strike. I mean, it's what you expect. I mean, I've never forgotten um, my honeymoon in France, where there was literally nothing to do on a Monday because nothing was open. You know, yeah. that's just everybody just shut down. And most of August, Paris is mostly closed because they just yes, like they all th there are head only off tourists. Down the, the Rue de Soleil <laughs> and head to the south, du Sud, you know, and it's yes. it's a remarkable country, really. I mean, I love France. I love the French. I mean, uh, but I I always go whenever I go to France and I, I speak fairly good French, although not good enough for Parisians. And I tend to find us. I have the problem of I'll sit there and I'll be reading a French newspaper and then someone will come up to me and speak to me in French because yeah. they assume, oh, French speaker, she's reading a French paper. Right. And then I respond with my terrible accent. My accent is atrocious. Mm. And they just pull this awful expression. You know, sort of how very dare you <laughs> yes, very be able to read our newspapers, but you sound like you come from Nice. Yes. <laughs> that's know. basically, well, I which, was taught which, which... by someone with a from southern france yes <laughs> so I've got which, this. which brings us to a rather nicely um, um a piece of information that you imparted uh, just recently that you were uh, as you were growing up you discovered that you were dyslexic and i think it's an interesting conversation to have because many people um that i speak to tell me that they've either got children who are suffering from a mild form of dyslexia or dyspraxia or something like that so it's something that yes. a lot of people have to deal with how was your experience and how and how did and how did you sort of overcome it if you like well, the piece that I've written, which Mike has very, for people who are listening, was published by Law and Liberty. It's an American magazine mm. where I'm a staff, I'm a staff writer. They call them senior writers in America. And I have to write one long feature a month for them. And that was, uh, this was actually the April feature, but for some reason it ran in the beginning of May, probably right. to do with me being slow. But anyway, the, the piece is actually about IQ and the fact that it's, mostly heritable in other words if you're very clever you get it from your mum and dad mm. you're not a special snowflake it's like i got green eyes from my mother and curly hair from my father mm. you know you inherit it in much the same way right. and so a lot of people don't want to hear that but one of the ways dyslexia used to be diagnosed i don't know whether it still is but it was certainly in the in the 70s when i was diagnosed with it was that a a child underperformed their iq so basically, you would be given an IQ test if dyslexia was suspected. And if your IQ was very high, and yet you were at the bottom of the class and everything, mm. but particularly in reading, yeah. then that was often a sign that the kid was dyslexic. There were mm. other things that they checked as well. I was checked for letter reversals. That's another standard thing. You just flip your letters around. Yeah. This seeming inability to learn to read, yet I was 
quite good at maths mm. and I, I've lost them now, but I remember when I was you know, sort of a teenager looking at my primary school reports from um, year one and year two and the maths was all fine and, you know, Helen can't read, Helen can't read. And the, and uh, it turned out for me, this was very important for me and I, and it'd be interesting if you got someone like Catherine Burblesing or Tom Bennett in mm. here, educators to talk about this or, or Calvin Robinson. Um, for me, what had to happen was I had to be taught to read using the phonics method. Right. I couldn't be taught to read using the method that was popular in the 70s. In, remember, this is in Queensland and Australia. Other countries, no doubt, did very different things. It was called the look-say method or the whole word method, mm. where you were taught an entire word that didn't work for me. I had to have it broken up into syllables. Right. Okay. And so you didn't have any I, trouble reading numbers then? Because some no. dyslexics can't read numbers either. It's a question of what order they see things in, isn't it? Yeah, my understanding is that when you have a trouble difficulties with the and remember I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm someone who's dyslexic, but I'm not a, an expert in it. I know what worked for me. Mm. And I have read, obviously, because you get interested in it. And what it led to for me was in the 70s and 80s when it was being treated is dyslexics are regularly IQ tested. So I probably had half a dozen IQ tests in primary school. Mm. And then because you're, you, there's then an educational record for you. Um, in my case, I then had another IQ test just before I went up. Right. And did they all and come then, out the same way, the IQ tests? I can't remember the numbers from when I was a kid. But the two most recent ones did. Right. I had one that just before I went up and then I had another one that was actually taken at Oxford in, I think, they, I had to ride over from my college to the science parks. And not only did they do the test, but I had to sit there while I was doing the IQ test with these little electrodes attached to my head <laughs> with this sort of gooey stuff. Right. And there was this machine behind me working out basically how I processed in information. Mm. And both those two tests came out with the same number, 148. Okay. But they were an adult test. And there's there are you use different tests for, for different ages. Yeah, no, the reason I the only reason I ask yeah. is because it's it was fascinating to me, you know, exactly how they measure it and whether the, every time they do a test it measures the same number, because presumably the number should be the same. Well, yes, and there there is a, a an expression that's that psychologists and statisticians and psychiatrists use uh, when they talk about this. They talk about someone's IQ stabilizing. Yeah, and it becomes more and for most people, obviously there are exceptions to this, but it becomes more and more stable as a person gets older. So mine, by the time I was uh, first uh, an older teenager and then in my 20s, by, the, by that time my IQ had completely stabilised and I have no desire to get another test because I know it will come mm. out within one point. It will right. be the same and that's basically meaningless. Um, but the... Uh, the and there's also the, the two books that I read uh, to feed into that piece, but I, I read quite a lot of other scientific papers. I shamelessly abused this facility known as Sci-Hub, which allows you to get academic papers without having to pay for them. Um, but uh, so that I could do, do a bit of extra reading. This was the, the first one, it's called The Bell Curve. And as I warn in the piece, it was by Richard Hernstein and Charles Murray. Now, mm. they're Americans. It's mainly about America. And there are things in it, like the, the last part of it's all these policy proposals, which if, if you show them to a British person, regardless of their politics, the response would be, well, that's bonkers. We're not doing that here. Mm. 
don't copy the Americans on policy, they can't do it. But ignoring that, the rest of the book is very, very interesting. But it is because it's basically a summary of IQ research to date. As I say in my piece, it is 600 plus pages printed on Bible paper. It took me a while to read. Yes. Useful doorstop material, I would say. Oh, absolutely. So what I finished up doing in order to get more recent information and also to download more recent papers and read more widely was get this little book by a chap called Stuart Ritchie and it's just intelligence all that matters and it's tiny and it's inexpensive (laughs) so that helps as well that is much better yes I like like that much better yeah the virtue of the Stuart Ritchie book is that it was published in 2015 whereas the bell curve came out in 1994 so there are things in the bell curve where they're cheerfully saying oh we don't know about this we don't know Mm. about that um whereas once you get to the 2015 book by Stuart Ritchie you find that uh you find that things that people didn't know or they weren't sure one way or the other have been shown to be true or false or whatever, which is actually very helpful. And then the other thing Richie does is gives you this terrific bibliography at the back and lists of papers and things Mm. that you can go and read yourself. So what is his, I mean, what is his conclusion about intelligence, if that's not a too simplification uh, for you? Well, the, 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 the basic guts of it is, is, um, you know, is summarised very nicely on the back of Ritchie's book, uh, where you know, the research shows that intelligence test scores are meaningful, that they relate to education, occupation, and even health, that they are genetically influenced, and that they are linked to measures of the brain, including the size of it. Now, obviously, this is a size relative to your population, mm. to, relative to the size of your body. As Richie points out in the book, elephants have much bigger brains than human beings do, but then elephants are enormous. Mm. And yes, elephants are very clever. You know, they yeah. are sociable. They have memory. They seem to mourn their dead. Yeah. All of that. We all talk about memory like an elephant, and there's a reason for that. But they're not going to be putting somebody on the moon anytime soon. No, no. Maybe it's just because they don't want to. Well, there is. Well, that's the Douglas Adams argument with dolphins. They're right. far too busy playing around in the water having yes. fun. Then, <laughs> yeah, why bother going to work if you don't actually have to? But that's, if you don't that, you actually know. have to. Right. Yeah, but I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I would like to sort of switch this conversation into the academic world, which you've also been talking about this week, where you go, it's all very well, um, you know, all these intelligent people arguing with each other about things. But if they don't actually use that intelligence to be intelligent, then what's the point? Would be my would well, be my. Well, this argument. is a thing, and it's exactly this particular issue that um, the bell curve and the uh, and intelligence, all that matters, start to bring up, is that it has become very difficult over the last few years to do research in this area. And the danger is, if you do do research in this area and publish in it, um, you'll get cancelled. Mm. And the the, the most egregious in the piece that I wrote for the critic which is also up on my Twitter feed and I think you may have retweeted it but Mm. I can tweet it again afterwards um it's quite short it's on a new publication called the Journal of Controversial Ideas and that is a standard academic journal you you know like a a chemistry if you went and got something on chemistry or or on biology or medicine or law or whatever it's an academic journal in the traditional sense you send your papers in they get peer-reviewed and so on and so forth but what they allow you to do at the journal of controversial ideas 
is if you're really worried that you'll get cancelled, you're allowed to publish your paper anonymously. Mm. It still has to go through the full formal peer review process and has to be good science, basically. So that's the first thing. And three of the papers in the first issue have that the scholars have taken that option. The other thing that they guarantee you is if you do put a controversial paper into the journal and they accept it for publication and it's peer reviewed in the proper way um, and it becomes the subject of a Twitter storm, basically, because that's what it is. It's Twitter storm. Um, The journal guarantees to have your back and not retract the paper unless it's for the traditional reasons that you retract a paper. And to not presumably presumably reveal the the name of the author. But of course... If they're the anonymous ones, but not all of them are anonymous, only some of them are. Right, because the difficulty with all of that is it's fine for them to stand by you and to have your back until such time as then... Um, the the crazed mob comes after the publication itself and that's when Mm. things start to get tricky isn't it because that's what we've seen so many times with people being cancelled with academics being refused you know chairs at universities with 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 academics and and, and other speakers being refused entry to different universities because it's the university that then loses uh, its its nerve and says well we can't really put up with all of this criticism so we're going to just have to cancel that and we won't do it anymore well, this is one of the things that the there's an editorial because it's the first issue, the first n- number mm. one, basically, of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. They talk about there's the phenomenon. There's a series of interrelated phenomena here. There's the post hoc fake peer review of people's papers on Twitter. Mm. Um, there's the brigading and dogpiling of academics in across a number of areas, mm. and it's not politically based. Some of them are left-wing, some of them are right-wing. They've just managed to do something that irritates a lot of people. Mm. Um, so there, there's that. And then there's the use of open letters and petitions. And I actually spoke to Francesca Minerva, who's one of the edit- co-editors of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. And she made the point to me, she said, I don't have a problem with people signing petitions if they really dislike an area of scholarship. My problem is with the universities going weak at the knees and yeah. then sacking the scholar who's done the right. research. And, and effectively closing off that particular avenue of exploration so that you're not even allowed to, mm. to, to go there. This is what has happened, not in all areas of it, but in some areas in quite a serious way with research into intelligence, because it just touches a nerve that's been raw since man walked on on two legs. Well, certainly raw since Christianity and Islam first emerged into the world, because they're both religions that have, as weird as it sounds to us now, very, very clear ideas about the idea of human equality mm. you know in islam it's more male equality and, and less good, good for women but even at the time when muhammad was coming up with those ideas the idea that to suggest in some way or form that uh, that all men are equal was an extremely radical idea mm. and in and christianity it was men and women as well although the status of women there also was a bit lower all the other civilizations including great civilizations like the historic Chinese civilization and the Romans in which Christianity first emerged, accepted that human beings were unequal. Yeah. They accepted that some were cleverer than others, that some were sportier than others, that some were better looking than others. And there's an incident in a Roman court case, for example, where a woman was on trial for murder and she was absolutely gorgeous. And this was, uh, I mean, the Romans later had women on juries. This, this was quite in their early history. Mm. 
and uh, she she and they had 15 jurors like in Scotland so diff- different legal system yeah and it was an all male jury and she just got got up in the dock and dropped her clothes you and can't they do that these days no you can't do that now the cps might take a dim view of it mm. but in what she was doing she was making an argument that made sense to a roman which is that if you were clever or brave or beautiful that meant that you were blessed by the gods and a better person. Yes. So one of the reasons why there is this awful fight over IQ research, although it's now starting to spread into sporting research with the transgender issue and, mm. and men and women sharing athletic events and so on and so forth, so even sport is not safe, is because we're terrified that we're going to find out that, well, not only are people radically unequal, in, on an individual basis, but that there are average differences between groups and that all of those differences are inherited, which means no matter how many trillions of pounds we spend on trying to improve the lot of people who come at the bottom of the educational totem pole... Or to homogenise everybody in another way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, we're not going to be able to do it. It's mm. not going to be possible. Although I suppose and the so, ideologues would say... Just because you can't do it doesn't mean you shouldn't try, does it? Well, I mean, a lot of people do say that, but it does become, and this is where we get back to the dyslexia point again. I was one of the lucky dyslexics with, A, a high IQ, which meant that the dyslexia was very obvious. Yeah, here was this kid Mm. with this very high IQ who couldn't read. Right. But And also the social class advantage. My parents paid for my phonics tutor themselves. So if you have people people who from uh, here it's poverty from poor backgrounds whose kid is clever but dyslexic Mm. and can't afford to pay for a tutor whether it's in phonics or in some other area then you've got a class issue which is some of the stuff that the Sewell report identified everyone wanted them to talk about race but they got up and they finished up talking about social class so um so you've got all sorts of really complex and difficult and challenging things in our faces that we don't want to acknowledge. But the way to respond to these complex and difficult things is to let the scholars do the research yeah. and Absolutely. see what falls out of that. Right. You should not have a situation where you have to found a special academic journal so that scholars can publish anonymously so they don't get cancelled in an important area of scholarly mm. research. Well, and Perhaps it's another area then that the government should get involved in because, after all, they've just announced, have they not, this week that Neil O'Brien is the new levelling up minister. Uh, and this seems to me to be a perfect example of what levelling up of should levelling be. Of levelling up. Oh, it absolutely is. And the, the thing is, the only way we can get anywhere with, it, with tr- things that are true is by staring them in the face. And the last paragraph of my Law and Liberty piece um, I mean, I'm a novelist, I wrote two novels about a civilization that does engage in eugenics. That's what Kingdom of the Wicked is about in in many ways, because it's based on Roman morality and the Romans did not care. And that was why it was so so controversial. We've got to wrap this up, though, Helen, so I'm afraid I've got to ask you to be very quick here. Uh, But uh, so what happens if we don't do this research and the Chinese do? Think about that. And think about what how China has behaved during mm. the pandemic. Yes. That's my closing warning. 
Okay. Well, it's a good one. Helen, thank you very much indeed. Helen Dale there uh, with her take on the week. Uh, some very interesting points that she's talked about. Uh, many of you are reacting to the dyslexia conversation, of course, as well, because a lot of people have had experience with that. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.